Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Unscripted Faith Podcast, the podcast for Christian women to come together and learn how to apply the Word of God to our daily lives. I'm your host, Jessie T, and we've been studying the topic of suffering these past few weeks, and there's so much to take away from this study that I'm finding it much more involved than I initially anticipated. I've been thinking about these past two weeks and how people are finding this podcast or why, considering that I really haven't done any advertising for it. And it occurred to me that most of you are probably finding it because you've searched for this topic. And that's probably because you are going through some kind of suffering or trial on your own right now. I mean, I don't know many people who would be in a good mood and be like, ooh, a podcast on suffering. That sounds like a blast. I should probably listen to that. So I just want to say, I may not know exactly who you are, but if you are in fact going through something right now and you're still just trying to make sense of it all, I just want to let you know that I've been praying for you. I know that sounds strange, but it's true. I have no way of knowing who is listening to this podcast or what your exact circumstances are, unless you were to shoot me some kind of email, but God knows you. And I know that he knows you and he hears you and he sees you because he has laid it on my heart to actually pray for those of you hearing this podcast. And I know that there are a ton of other podcasts out there that you could be listening to, but I just thought you should know that I consider this podcast so much more than just a thing that I do. To me, this is a ministry. I'm actually interested in your lives, and I'm doing spiritual battle alongside you through whatever it is that you're going through or whatever you've been through. So with that said, let's take a look at some possible causes for suffering, because as humans, We tend to try to make sense of things and figure out where we identify in certain situations, but please just understand that not all of these causes will necessarily apply to you or your specific situation, but some of them might, and hopefully this study will help you understand a little bit about the mind of God, at least as far as we're able to discover from what we're given in the Bible and from our own life experiences. This is a general list, and it's certainly not an exhaustive list of causes for suffering. I don't even know if it would be possible to come up with a complete list of explanations about God's ways. So if you're trying to identify your own reasons for suffering, just understand that this is just my best shot. We really need to remember and even meditate on the fact that his ways are higher than our ways. And they're even unsearchable and beyond knowing. So I just ask for grace for every time that you listen to one of my podcasts, because I'm not claiming to be the one who has figured it all out. I'm just someone who loves the Lord and studies his word diligently, trying my best to make sense of this crazy world, just like you and the experiences that we are going through on this earth, just being alive and being obedient to the call of God on my life. So with that said, let's talk about some of those causes. The most obvious reason we think of when we try to understand the causes for suffering can be summed up when we talk about the fall of man. And that story can be found in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. The story basically goes like this. God decides to make the world and when he makes the world, he makes these two people, Adam and Eve. And he says to them, here's this perfect planet for you to live on. I'll supply all of your needs. I'll come and talk with you and visit with you each and every day. And we'll share this amazing fellowship together. And you two can keep each other company. You'll complement each other perfectly and enjoy each other. And together you'll have dominion or be in charge of all these amazing creatures that I've put on the earth for you to enjoy. And you can make your home in this beautiful, glorious garden, which supplies everything you could possibly need physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and even provide for the very sustenance of your life. But there's just one rule. You see that tree over there? Do not eat from it. But then along comes this serpent, and let's just put a pause right here. 
I don't know what Eve was thinking, but most women scream and flail around when they see a snake. But Eve, I don't know why she didn't freak out. Maybe it's because sin had not yet entered the world, so she had no reason to fear the snake. Or maybe it's because this happened so soon after God created the earth and declared that it was good. And since Satan hadn't yet injected his sin into this world, there was no cause for concern. But in either case, along comes a snake, and now immediately we have another problem or question to raise. Because the snake is talking to the woman. Let's just put another pause here. Because if you weren't already freaked out by snakes, now you've got animals talking to you. In today's world, if you see an animal speaking to you in real life, you're either crazy or you're on something or you've just witnessed a miracle. Or maybe the point is that animals could talk during the Garden of Eden. We don't really know, but someday we will. Anyway, the snake challenges Eve about what God told her about this mysterious tree and this forbidden fruit. And not only does he question her about the tree and the rules that God put forth regarding this tree, he also calls into question the consequences that God laid out for them if they ate this fruit on the tree in the middle of the garden. And here's where he really gets her as he leads her to question why they can't eat this fruit on this tree. He causes Eve to question why God really didn't want them to eat this fruit. Was it because of what he actually told them? Or was it some other reason? Think about that for a moment, especially those of you who are parents or who deal with children in any capacity. Is it not true that your child's biggest comeback when you tell them they can't do something is, but why? Hmm, I wonder where they got that from. So Eve, going along with this assumption that God is withholding something good from her, takes a piece of the forbidden fruit from the only tree in the entire garden that God told her not to eat from. And she eats it. And if that wasn't good enough, she also takes it to her husband and he eats from it as well. And thus, not only were their eyes opened to the knowledge of good and evil, just as God had said, but sin had entered the world forever by way of temptation from a talking snake. Just awesome. There's now a running theme that you've probably noticed in my podcast series on suffering, and it makes the case that temptation leads us to sin. And we must understand that naturally, sin brings consequences. What we found through this story is that sin has entered the world and it cannot be taken back because now humans are forever aware of the knowledge or the difference between good and evil. And since they were granted free will, they now have the ability to choose one or the other in every aspect of life going forward. And so now God's design has been forever corrupted in the sense that humans could no longer live on this planet in the manner in which God originally intended for them. But God's not a fool. Just because this happened doesn't indicate that God was surprised by this situation. We already know and acknowledge that God knows everything. There's no aspect to this story of the Garden of Eden in which we see any element of surprise in God's reaction with Adam and Eve later in the day when he confronts them. But again, just as we have free will to choose sin if we want to, so did Adam and Eve. And so now, instead of just being a shoo-in for an eternity spent in heaven, now, because of this original sin, we humans have earned the ability to create detours for ourselves and take the long way around and even make our lives harder and even earned ourselves the ability to reject God eternally if we so choose. 
So taking a detour in terms of salvation is what Adam and Eve essentially chose to do when they ate from the forbidden fruit. We might say, well, if I were Eve, I wouldn't have eaten from the fruit. I would have just followed God's instructions. Well, that's actually a very prideful statement to say. Have you ever lied? Because God said not to lie and you haven't followed that rule. Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever been jealous of something that someone else has? The Bible says not to covet and you disobeyed that rule as well. See, you cannot say that you would have chosen something different because Satan, the tempter, is a cunning and tricky little creature. And he knows you pretty well, and he will stop at nothing to trip you up. So be careful when making statements that would inadvertently elevate your goodness or your intelligence or your status above anyone else's. Now back to the story. Later on, we see that God comes along to fellowship with Adam and Eve, just like he did every other day. And he questions Adam and Eve about the incident that had just happened with the serpent. Again, not because he was surprised by it, but essentially to convict them just like the Holy Spirit does for us. And Adam and Eve immediately rightly confess their sin, knowing they can't hide it from God. So of course, now God has to punish and correct this sin. Well, what's the purpose of correcting sin in our lives? Well, from a parenting perspective, is it not for the purpose of making the child think twice about committing that same sin again? It seems that the point is probably the same in this story as well. And so God lays out some consequences for the sin that they committed in the garden. Some of those consequences that God gave to Adam and Eve include having to work extra hard to receive a harvest from the land and pain during childbirth. But these practical consequences we see here We need to understand that they were not just a one-time event that only applied to Adam and Eve. And that's because sin was not just an external, isolated event. It was actually something that was birthed in humanity going forward. In other words, it was the moment that sin embedded itself like an infectious disease in our hearts forever. And there was no cure. It was a terminal illness, an eternally terminal illness, I might add until Jesus came. And that sinful nature continued to be birthed forever and will continue to be birthed in humans through the process of procreation until the day of Christ Jesus. This is why the Bible lays out that unpopular doctrine that we are born sinners. People don't like to think about babies being sinners and neither do I because I love babies. But once you grasp the cause and effect of this whole incident that happened so long ago, you can start to understand why the Bible would take such an unwavering and a little bit disturbing position. And of course, once you have some life experience under your belt, you can see at least by infancy that yes, babies do have it in them to sin. They are selfish, even though they can't help it. They throw their food all over the place. They pull hair, they bite and all that crazy stuff. We might not like to call these antics a sin because that just sounds harsh, but that's what it really is. It's sin. I mean, think about it for a moment. If God created this perfect environment where we had fellowship all the time with God and sin had not entered the world, so no one had any complaints or any reason to complain, and we had all the food that we could possibly want or need, and the air and the temperature was always just right, and the animals were cute and cuddly, and everything around us was beautiful and perfect, and we were never bored because there was so much to do, and because we had access to this perfect creator who loved us and even visited with us every day. And everyone had exactly what they wanted or needed. So then why would we need to scream and fuss and cry? Why would we need to pull hair, bite people, hit, steal, kill, and even slander other people? 
Now, since we know that obviously humans have been procreating since Adam and Eve, we know that sin has existed in the hearts of men, women, and children ever since Eve gave into this temptation incident. And since sin does exist in the hearts of humanity, and we see evidence all around us of the effects of sinful hearts in our everyday lives, this is actually a perfect segue into the second cause for sin, which is sometimes our suffering can be a result of other people's sins. Like in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain murdered his own brother with a stone, all because he was jealous of his brother since God accepted his brother's sacrifice, but not his own. Or sometimes suffering happens as a result of our own sin and our own choices. Now, this is actually a really sad story that happened in my family, but it is relevant to the point that I want to make. I have a relative who had two children at a young age, and she was left to raise them by herself with little to no resources. And in order to deal with her emotional pain, she turned to alcohol, and when money ran out, she couldn't afford the alcohol. Feeling that she needed the alcohol just to get through a day because that's what happens when you're an addict, she was found trying to sell her children on a street corner just so she could get money for them and then turn around and buy alcohol with the money. Well, thankfully, a married couple came along and I guess you could say they bought the children by legally adopting them and raising them as their own. The children were actually old enough, though, to remember their birth mother a little bit. And so when she came back around and wanted to be in their lives, they rejected her because of the pain that she had caused them. As you can imagine, this rejection also caused the mother to have hurt feelings as well. And to this very day, the mother and the two now adult children are, for the most part, estranged from each other. Their relationship is very strained. There is a lot of hurt and pain and confusion surrounding this story almost 40 years later, and everyone involved has suffered a great deal as a result of one lousy but monumental decision that was made on that fateful day. Years later, as an adult, I've actually grown closer with this relative now that I'm grown up. I'd like to say that she's changed her ways with alcohol, but that's really not the case. In fact, it will likely be alcohol that drives her to her grave, unfortunately. Now, other people who know our family history and who knew her back then, even reaching as far back as a couple of generations to my grandparents, have sometimes said, well, she didn't know any better. I mean, look how she was raised. And while, yes, her upbringing probably did play a role in this story, it was definitely not the primary reason for this situation that unfolded that day. In fact, this relative knew that what she was doing was wrong. And that's one reason why, after her father refused to give her any more money for alcohol, she actually went to the next town over to sell her children because she knew that if her father saw her, it would not have gone well for her. That's one reason why she didn't want to keep the babies either, is that after she was caught trying to sell the babies for alcohol, she was ashamed of herself because she knew it wasn't right. And she knew her family would be appalled by her actions. Look, we all have stories. I know I do. Maybe I haven't tried to sell my children, but God does not see one sin worse than the other. He sees them as all the same. He says, if you have broken one of my commandments, you have broken them all. So we need to be very careful not to judge people when we're looking at other people's stories. But my point is that I just do not buy this idea that someone else is responsible for our choices. I'm not saying that I don't have compassion for people because I definitely do. And I'm not saying that if someone was not taught how to behave, that they'll automatically just know right from wrong. 
I'm saying that to a fairly large extent, in most cases, like the one that happened in my own family, your upbringing is not an excuse for poor choices. The nurture that we did or did not receive can be a factor in making bad choices. The lack of teaching can be a factor in our poor choices, and yes, even our own intellect or mental health can play a role in our poor choices. But most poor choices that we make are actually well-thought-out decisions. Most people don't cheat on their spouse by accident. Most people don't post malicious social media content not knowing that it would hurt someone else's feelings. And most people don't lie about something that they did wrong because they actually did the right thing. And so to blame an entire multi-factor decision on just one piece of the decision-making process of a well-thought-out plan is just not usually a real thing. It's just an excuse. Ecclesiastes, which was written by King Solomon, the wisest man ever to live before Jesus came, gives us insight about why some of us, like myself, so confidently hold this view that I'm sharing, that a person is responsible for their own actions. And when we read the book that he wrote, we discover something about this very point that I'm making. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 11 of the book of Ecclesiastes, that God has put this whole idea of eternity in our hearts. Like, he downloaded this idea that there's something more than just this transitory life that we're living in. The idea that is expressed here indicates that not only does every man, woman, and child somehow know that there's a God that is our judge and gets to tell us if we're right or wrong, and that this life here on earth is not just all that there is when we die, but with that knowledge that's downloaded into us, we also know right from wrong. And this knowledge is central to the fact that the wages for sin is death, because how can the idea of eternity even exist in our hearts without also knowing right from wrong? Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? When they sinned, their eyes were open to the knowledge of good and evil. Knowing right from wrong is called morality, and it has existed in us since the Garden of Eden. And we can see evidence of this truth by the fact that when the serpent challenged Eve about the forbidden fruit, she initially hesitated to take the fruit. If she did not know right from wrong, would she have hesitated? Wouldn't she just take the fruit from the serpent, no questions asked? Because remember, that story also says she saw the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye. Granted, her hesitation didn't last long, but she did know right from wrong because she came back at the serpent by reciting the only rule that God had ever given them, pretty matter-of-factly, I might add, and pretty immediately after the serpent's first appeal to her before she even took the fruit from him. If that illustration isn't convincing enough, let's look at it from a perspective of an atheist or an agnostic. In just about every debate that I've heard about the existence of God, nearly every one of them ends up coming down to the question of where morals come from. Why would that be? I mean, even an atheist seems to believe that there's this idea of right and wrong somehow, yet they reject God, probably because they don't want to have to follow the moral structure and the list of do's and don'ts that are laid out in the Ten Commandments. Well, if you believe that God is just an energy or a higher power, then you're not really accountable to it because that makes God just a thing. Then how can you be accountable to an energy or a force or a thing? So to deny God's existence is actually to admit that he exists because you must first acknowledge his existence in order to deny or reject it. And just because you reject it doesn't mean that morals just disappear. They still remain. It just means that you have made the choice not to be convicted by your innate sense of morality 
so that you can go off and do whatever you want to do. He has put this idea of eternity in our hearts. And with that, he downloaded the code of morals as well. Here's another way to explain it. Conversely, if you believe that God is real and you believe that he is a being and not just a dumbed down energy force, then you must be accountable to him. You can't help but be accountable to him because in your mind, your heart, and your soul, and with every fiber of your being, you subconsciously elevate his status above all else. Well, then you end up accepting these moral standards that have been inside of you all along and you recognize without question and without any doubt that morals come from God by way of his commandment and his laws and it's just in you. And if you've ever been alive for any length of time, then you know what I'm talking about. And since this is the case, I stand by my point that no decision is made aside from weighing right and wrong in our hearts before we sin or commit some kind of wrongdoing based on that which God himself has impressed on our hearts. The next cause for suffering then is the result of our own choices. And when we choose to make a bad decision, God may choose to discipline us. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you just like a father would address his own son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and corrects the behavior of everyone he accepts as his son. I just want to put a little comment in here because I think it's really neat. A lot of people at some point, especially in the beginning of coming to Christ, struggle to figure out if they really are saved or not. This verse says that he corrects the behavior or chastens or disciplines the person that he loves. So if you have ever surrendered your own life to God, but you're just wondering if you're truly saved and you're just living a life that you know is not honoring to God, and you also recognize that God is disciplining you for those dishonoring choices that you're making, then I think you can conclude that you're probably saved. His discipline is a sign that he has placed his hand on your life. And that verse goes on to say, endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you like his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not being disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline at some point or another, then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Well, now you might say, well, you just said that everyone goes through discipline. So doesn't that mean that everyone is a child of God? Well, I actually don't think that's what it means. There is a lot of scriptural evidence that states only those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are true, legitimate sons and daughters of God Almighty. Consequences are just a natural reaction that cannot be avoided, like a cause and effect. For example, if you crash into a building, your body is going to hurt and you might die. Well, that's a consequence for an action. That's why everyone ends up experiencing consequences. But in keeping with the point of this entire series on suffering, I've been making the case that Christians seem to suffer more sometimes than those who are not saved because we are called to a life of suffering. So besides being able to get to know God better through suffering, why else might we be called to a life of suffering? Could it be that perhaps it's because God keeps us in check more 
than he would those who reject him as their heavenly father? You see, we belong to a heavenly father, and we had better be representing him with honor and glory in our daily lives. That's something to think about. Our earthly fathers, it says, disciplined us for a little while. And I'm going to add that they disciplined us for a little while toward the way that they thought was best. But God disciplines us for our good and for his purposes in order that we may become permanently changed by his discipline to the effect that we become more Christ-like so we can understand and get to know God better and so that we can share in his holiness and also be less open to criticism in some regards. No discipline is going to seem pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The idea here beckons back to Genesis way back in the story of Joseph after his brothers cast him into a pit and left him for dead. And he was actually sold as a slave to some Egyptians passing by, but they told their father that Joseph had died. And through God's divine plan, Joseph ends up becoming one of the highest officers in all the land of Egypt. And then along comes this famine in the land where his brothers and his fathers live, and they're going to die if they don't find a way to get some food. So they head down to Egypt because they've heard that there's food down there. And unbeknownst to them, Joseph is the one in charge of all of the food in the storehouses. And he is the one who gets to say who gets the food and who doesn't. And so they come face to face asking Joseph for food, not knowing that he's their brother, because not all of the brothers knew the truth that Joseph was actually sold to slaves. And so eventually Joseph sends them back with plenty of food. And he also calls for their father and the rest of the family and their servants to come down to Egypt and lets them live among the Egyptian people, the country which he now ranks as one of the highest officers in all of the land, even though he was originally sold as a slave. And so to sum up that whole experience, Joseph eventually says of this ordeal, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Although the context of this story is not that Joseph sinned and brought calamity upon himself or that he was suffering for a long time because of sin, this verse is applicable to the effect that even though our circumstances may hurt us at the time, God has a plan to work it out for our benefit just like he did for Joseph. We may also suffer as a result of spiritual battle. And this is not something that many Christians are comfortable talking about, but we would be so off base to ignore this truth. Because we live in a spiritual world. There is more to this world than just what meets the eye, like the houses that you see and the trees and the sunrises and the sunsets. Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created for him and through him. So we see here that there is this acknowledgement of something that is invisible to us that we cannot perceive. Well, to get some clarity on this, we look at Ephesians 6, 12, which says we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We don't like to think about this because it's weird and scary. 
some Christians only like to talk about the normal stuff, you know, the Ten Commandments, Noah's Ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Daniel in the lion's den, Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. But to omit this discussion of the powers and principalities and invisible spiritual weird stuff is to pretty much omit what Jesus crushed underfoot when he died on the cross. It wasn't just that he crushed Satan underfoot, but he crushed everything associated with Satan and evil and death. And this is the reason that we love him so much and we are so grateful and why we have such hope in him because he is king and lord of all. But you know, this whole thing that happened in my testimony that I shared recently has to do with exactly this idea about invisible powers, cosmic powers and principalities. Even though apparently they deny that Satan is even real, or at least that's what I was told, that's exactly what I was dealing with because of their spiritual preferences. I was dealing with invisible forces, the same ones that they call on, by the way, to oversee their spells and their readings and things like that. So when I was initially pretty much oblivious to this idea that people that I knew were actually trying to conjure up the spirits of dead people in order to try to get in touch with their dead relatives so that they could predict the future, or even though some people are really into this idea of trying to hunt or communicate with ghosts and read tarot cards and go to psychics and figure out their astrological signs and horoscopes and things like that, even though I was oblivious to the power that people thought these practices held, I was denying that there is power in any of that stuff. But I just want to say I was wrong to think that way because that thought process that I had runs entirely contrary to what the Bible actually teaches about these things. So if you're ignorant to these things like I was, I would encourage you to open your Bible and let God open the eyes of your understanding so that you can see it for what it is. The truth is that these powers are acknowledged throughout the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and they are real. That is why God goes to such great lengths to warn us about them and why he went to such great lengths to crush and defeat them once and for all. These spirits that people are conjuring up, contacting or consulting or going out to find like ghosts and stuff, they're not good. They're not good at all. They are demons and they work for Satan. They're not friendly. They're not your guardian angels. They're not your guides. They're not your imaginary friends or your kids' imaginary friends. And if your kids are into this stuff, this is a terrible thing. These spirits are liars. They cannot tell the truth. Now, that's not to say that they can't tell a truth at all. But what I'm saying is that they can't tell the truth for very long and certainly not for your benefit. That's because they hate you, because they work for Satan, and Satan's entire existence is to hurt you, to destroy you, kill you, and ultimately drag you into an eternity of suffering and pain. They will not lead you to the fount of living water. They will not lead you to your salvation, and they won't lead you to happiness. They are deceptive spirits that work for Satan, and Satan hates you. And yes, he is real and he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy your life and everything and everyone that you love. And he's just waiting for the opportunity to rip you apart. So make sure that you're not doing something to open the gate for that to happen. You can hear me talk about this stuff and roll your eyes and think I'm just a wacko like some of the people in my testimony story tried to say about me, but I didn't write the book. and I certainly didn't inspire it. The Bible tells us about all of these truths and was inspired by God. And who could possibly know better these things than him? 
If these things were not real, just think about this. If these powers or these little things that people mess with to try to contact dead people, if these were not real, then people would not be practicing them because they would have no power. So yes, you can suffer under the weight of spiritual oppression from invisible forces. And as Christians, we need to be aware of that. And we also need to be aware of how these spiritual battles could enter our lives. There are tons of different ways that that can happen. But just to give you kind of a jump start, if you're not familiar with it, here are some of the ways that spiritual battle may be waged on your children or in your home and how you might be able to recognize it. Various media outlets seek to desensitize our kids to these spiritual beings. And no, I'm not just talking about the news media. I'm also talking about the things that your kids play with for entertainment's sake or the things that you give them to keep them quiet so you can go take a shower or get some housework done. The video games that they're playing. A lot of them feature demons where the player of the game has to either kill a demon or become a demon. Another point of entry to these spiritual forces are through toys that are supposed to give your kids an early start to occultic practices. Take, for instance, the popular toy Mixies, which are these cute little occultic animals that let you create magic potions and cauldrons and help your child learn how to cast spells and other sorts of divination practices that include this play toy. Or even through movies featuring similar types of witchcraft things. And I know I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but it is what it is. The Harry Potter movies or even the Addams Family, those things are all kind of hearkening back to the idea of divination. You really need to just be aware and be able to discern spiritually whether or not these things are good for your children to be exposed to. Another way that your teenagers or your young adult children might be exposed to these things are by just making these practices look innocent, alluring, fun, enticing, and majestic by featuring things like healing crystals or the practice of Reiki and other seemingly innocent things or paraphernalia that might actually be kind of dressed as, well, as we know that Satan can dress himself as an angel of light. It's the same idea, dressing these objects as good things. If you can't see it, then I would really encourage you to strongly pray and just ask God to open your eyes because you cannot protect yourself or your kids from anything if you're ignorant to it. I just want to further drive home this point that spiritual battles are real. So let's take a look at Job 1, 6 through 8, just to continue this idea, because this story is plainly illustrating for us what this is all about. It says, the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, in this verse, the sons of God are the angels, the ones who live in heavenly places. But not only did they present themselves to the Lord, Satan arrived among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan replied, from roaming about on the earth, walking back and forth across it. Now, this is a reference, I believe, to 1 Peter 5, 8, stating that Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. I say that because God questions Satan, asking him from where he came from. And of course, this was after the fall of angels. And remember, Satan used to be an angel. And since Satan was a created being, God knew his frame and his intentions. And he knew where Satan had come from and why. So the question God presents to Satan is not merely one stemming from genuine ignorance, but one that is more in line with the manner in which he questioned Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. And Satan could only answer just that he had come from roaming back and forth about the earth. He didn't even try to pretend or claim that he was roaming the earth for any good reasons to spread any goodwill toward mankind because he is full of evil. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There's no one like him in all the earth. He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so here again, we see that Satan has basically been roaming the entire earth, just looking for someone to torment. And then what happens? God offers Job to Satan. This is confusing to a lot of people, especially to the Christian who thinks that if they just serve the Lord, that their life will go well. That was me for a long time when I was younger and less mature in the faith. It's also confusing for those who just cannot understand why God would allow anything bad to happen. And it took me years to understand why God would do such a thing. So let's look at it. God offered up Job not because he deserved to be put through the torment. Instead, God offered up Job because he knew that Job would suffer in a God-honoring way that would actually end up disproving Satan's accusation against Job, which I didn't read. And that accusation against Job was that Job is only faithful to God because of what he gets from God. So God actually allowed Job to go through this test in order to prove to Satan the faithfulness of his servant Job. The important tidbit here that we can't overlook, and I want to stress this, is that God allowed Job to go through this trial. How do I know that? Well, because Satan went before God, and God is the one who offered him up, not to harm him, but to serve God's purpose. And the result is that he ends up stronger in his faith than before. And we see that this is true because even though Job went through one of those fiery trials that we talked about in this last podcast, where basically everything goes wrong all at once, we see in the end of all of this that Job not only passes the test of suffering with flying colors and proves Satan a liar, but because of Job's faithfulness in this trial, God increases Job's blessings significantly at the end of the trial. Now, in chapter 23, verse 10, Job concludes, But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. This whole story is a perfect illustration of spiritual battle. So sometimes we do face these spiritual battles with powers and principalities that are invisible to us. But even though God allows these invisible forces to harass us and cause tremendous problems in our lives, he never puts his children out there in the spiritual realm for the purpose of destruction at the hands of the enemy. It's always for his good, and ultimately that results in our good as well. We can also suffer sometimes because God wants to sanctify us, and that means to purify us. You know, it's funny, everyone's so hung up these days on what is my purpose? Who am I? What's my identity? Am I a cat or a dog or a boy or a girl? Well, it's not wrong to look for a purpose. It's kind of in our nature to try to figure out where we belong. It's the very thing that actually ends up leading us to God, if you think about it. But we tend to complicate this conversation, so let me just simplify it a little bit. If you are one of those people that is searching for your place in this world, let me just sum it up for you right here, right now. We are on this earth for the purpose of imitating and bringing glory to the God of all creation. He is the one who holds all things together, who puts breath in your lungs, who keeps your heart beating and allows you to choose him forever or reject him forever. This is the purpose for everyone, whether we choose to accept it or not. That's our purpose is to bring glory to God. Even more intriguing is that we all have the same umbrella identity in Christ if we have chosen Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that is that we are loved, 
forgiven, justified, made new, and have been adopted and made children of God and were set apart for the purpose of living our daily lives differently in order to let the whole world know that our God is a living and holy, all-powerful, merciful, just, and faithful God, among other many other wonderful things. So since we all have the same purpose and identity, I want to share this about my own life. And that is that there have been many years where I was basically just a church girl. I was growing in head knowledge and definitely on the path to be made more Christ-like. But I had a long way to go before anyone could tell that I was truly transformed because of God's love for me and mine for him. I thought that I was doing things right. I was saved, but I was definitely just not transformed. And I absolutely was not living by this idea of embodying this purpose of living my life in order to glorify God. I was nice. I watched my language. I didn't get drunk or high. I did good things for other people, but so don't the unbelievers. But I was also jealous and I lied sometimes and I sometimes had my own motives in my mind and I was hypocritical and I still struggled with my own sin just like the unbelievers do. You know, if you think about it, did you know that when the world looks at the church, they don't even know what that means? They can't differentiate between individual walks with the Lord from people who call themselves Christians and the multitude of people who attend church sometimes and the other multitude of people who attend church all the time. They literally just don't know what a real Christian is or is supposed to be or do. And the fact is, a lot of believers also don't know the difference either because a lot of so-called Christians have sacrificed so much of what is supposed to set us apart and make us look different from culture and society that it really does make it hard for any of us to tell the difference these days between a person who really loves Jesus and one who was just raised in the church but was never born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some Christians can't even go out into the world and identify another Christian. And that is a huge problem. And I'm sad to say that I was one of those people who for a long time made the world shudder when they thought of what a Christian was. I want to try to give an example of why God would even bother to put us through this process of suffering for the sake of sanctification. Now, since God is a father, I'd like to demonstrate this example for you, but in terms of motherhood instead of fatherhood. So let's say that you're a mother who has a toddler that has picked up this habit of walking around, spitting on everything and pulling hair and screaming until they get exactly what they want and hitting everyone. And you're a woman from a prominent family. Your father is the president of the country that you live in and your mother is just the most beloved queen that ever lived. You are expected to behave in a certain way and you are under the ever scrutinizing eyes of the very critical public. At all times and for everything that you do, people are watching you. In other words, you have a reputation to maintain, and this little heathen child of yours is not representing your family very well at all. People are slandering your family name because of this child of yours. It's just off the rails. The tabloids are writing negative headlines about you. Your family is losing business deals because of this crazy kid, and they're criticizing your parenting skills in a very hurtful and personal way. So it's clear that you have to do something to get this under control and fast. You don't want them to continue this behavior. And if you allow them to keep doing this as they grow up and you never bother to teach them right from wrong and they become adults who continue to behave this way, it could cause a lot of problems for you, but a lot more problems for them. 
And since you love your child so much, you would be highly motivated to teach your child that all of these behaviors are wrong. And you would instead teach them how they should be conducting themselves. And eventually they would learn a different habit that is more socially acceptable and pleasing to the public. And this would bring honor and peace and respect back to your family name. You wouldn't just leave them there to figure it out on their own. You would be proactive in the parenting department, honing in on those bad behaviors until eventually your child begins to conduct themselves in a more praiseworthy way. It's the same for God's children. He will accept us in our sinful state, but he will not leave us there. Everything that we do after we give our lives to the Lord is marked with a purpose as far as God is concerned to teach us how to behave so that we can bring the highest honor and glory to his name. And so sometimes suffering is a painful but necessary teaching tool to bring about this kind of change in our lives. Suffering is also used as a way for God to reveal himself to us. What does that even mean? Well, it means that God can use suffering to teach us something about himself. In Job 42, one through six, it says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Here we see that God reveals his power and wisdom and holiness to Job. And Job finally acknowledges it and also finds himself approaching God with utter humility. And for what purpose? Well, I don't know about you, but anytime God has revealed something about himself to me, it causes me to reflect upon who he is. And then once I fully get a hold of it, I have no choice but to proclaim without any shame the goodness of God. So in this story, God ends up teaching Job the correct posture that we should have before God Almighty. And that's a posture of humility, holy reverence, and respect. And I would encourage us just to meditate upon these truths as we wrestle and stumble through our own trials. Just think about how we approach God about the things that we're going through. Do we come before the throne of God shaking our fist, making demands and insisting that God conform his mind to ours? Or do we come before God asking him to conform our minds to his? You know, it's interesting. I was actually looking through Instagram recently and I came across this Jewish person. I think he was a Messianic Jew, but he was basically giving these lessons on understanding Hebrew. And he taught about the word prayer. And he said, there's really no good direct Hebrew to English translation for the word prayer. And that prayer in English is translated with this idea that I come before God and I ask him to do certain things for me. And I give him a list of things that I want. And then I wait expectantly for those things to happen. But prayer in the Hebrew sense is actually exactly opposite. It means I come before God and I ask him 
to transform my mind to be just like his. And that's the posture that we're supposed to have before God. It doesn't mean that we can't make requests. It just means that we should be waiting for God to transform our thinking to the way that he wants us to be thinking about certain things. Another way that God may use suffering is to teach us to depend on him. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if we were allowed to do life our way, as we sometimes think we want to do, we would surely embark on a path of self-destruction that will eventually catch up to us and will probably go broke financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or even make ourselves physically sick. We may become stressed and anxious, depressed, weary, too busy to enjoy anything, empty, confused, tired, and just any number of other negative manifestations. And so that's why so many unsaved people have no hope because doing it our way just is not only not productive, but it is destructive. It's because they depend on themselves and their own limited understanding to try to work their own lives out the way that they think it should be. They lean on their own understanding and deceitful hearts, giving into lustful passions and foolishness that just leaves them empty and distraught and scarred instead of trusting the one who has infinite wisdom and knows everything about them and loves them more than they could possibly love themselves. And so to prevent this from happening to us, just like in the previous example of being a good parent, God wants us to learn how to depend on his guidance and his sufficient grace because he knows the way and he knows what's best for us and he knows what's going to end up being the thing that completes us and makes us fulfill his purposes and that's going to be the best thing for us instead of depending on our inefficient and irrational ways and systems, tools, and hacks and tricks so that instead of chasing happiness, we learn how to seek peace so that we can rest there and fall in love with his presence and guiding hand. But some of us are just so hard-hearted and it takes a long time to get through to us in such a way that any measurable change is noticed by ourselves or anybody else. John 15, 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Those of us who choose not to acknowledge the fact that God holds all things together need to realize that denial of this truth does not make God just disappear. Our denial of anything related to God doesn't make him disappear doesn't make him useless, doesn't make him bad, it doesn't make him a liar, and it doesn't make him a fraud. It just makes the unbeliever completely and utterly hopeless. The Bible also says, let God be true and every man a liar. So regardless of what you deny, it doesn't mean that you're right. And we need to acknowledge that because I know for sure that there are some Christian sisters and brothers out there who seem to love the Lord, but they deny certain things about how he wants us to live in this world that he created for us. They don't like his commands. They don't like his laws. They don't like what God has to say about certain hot button social justice issues buzzing around in the headlines today. But you have to understand that God hasn't changed just because society has. Their denial of God's rules and the reason that he made those rules does not negate the wisdom of the rules that God put in place for us. Their denial doesn't change God because he stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not God that needs to conform it's us. We also suffer sometimes in order for God to redefine our lives. Case in point, my testimony that I shared in episode two, that great trial that I endured changed me. And I can confidently say that it changed me permanently. It was a transformative experience and one that I will never turn from. 
And the same is true for King David. He literally had people pursuing him, trying to kill him. And yet he was able to suffer in an oddly optimistic way. Psalm 66, 10 through 12 has King David saying, For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. And you let people ride over our heads when we went through fire and water. And you brought us to a place of abundance. So here David is acknowledging that God's the one that tested them, refined them, brought them into prison, laid burdens on their back and let people ride over their heads and put them through fire and water. But he also expresses this gratitude and this understanding that he realizes that it was God that brought him to a place of abundance after the suffering. Since we've done a great job at establishing the fact that we Christians are called to suffer, don't you want to suffer like that? With optimism and with unshakable faith and the surety that it will be okay? I know I do. The last reason that I have for suffering is for us to grow our ministry toward others. Again, another perfect example of this is this trial that I went through in 2020 was one of the hardest things that I've ever been through in my life, probably potentially the hardest thing actually that I've ever been through. But after the suffering started to wane, it wasn't even over yet before I realized that there was going to be something good coming from it. But after the suffering began to fade away, I realized that this great trial that I had found myself in had actually opened up opportunities for ministry for me with my own friends that I've been praying for for years, as well as perfect strangers. And it even led me and prompted me to do this podcast. The fact that we have the Bible to read, which includes other people's stories of suffering, just further proves the point that other people's sufferings can be used to encourage and minister to others. And 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort other people in any trouble with the same comfort that we ourselves have been given from God. That's exactly the point that I'm trying to make about sometimes our suffering is for the ministry of other people. I don't know what I can add to this verse to drive the point home any further that sometimes suffering isn't for us. And I know that that doesn't make us feel better all the time because in our selfishness, we don't necessarily want to suffer for the benefit of other people when we're in the middle of it. But I can promise you that if you are suffering for the purpose of someone else's benefit, it does bring great comfort later when you find yourself in a situation where your words of encouragement and the wisdom that you've gained from the God-ordained trials that you've been experiencing have touched someone else's lives and actually make a difference for them. I would even go so far as to say that I personally have found that I actually grow even more spiritually when I'm ministering to others versus when I'm just keeping to myself. I can't really explain it, but I think it's because when I am ministering to other people, it causes me to have to be in the word even more. And being in the word more helps me feel closer to God and also has this other benefit of helping me to memorize scripture better. So as you can see, there are multiple different potential causes for suffering. And the point of listing the ones that I've been researching here is because sometimes we like to try to compartmentalize different aspects of our lives because we're basically looking for a way to fit in or feel normal, I guess. 
But the thing is, when we're dealing with God, it's really difficult to be able to pinpoint all of the reasons. You know, you can have one reason for suffering, but also have several different causes that God has in mind about why you should go through this certain trial. And we tend to like to blame God when things are going really bad. You know, we label him as unfair, cruel, hateful, and unloving. But if you think about it, if you have a God that is so wise and has such a bird's eye view of the entire picture of your life story, it's really hard to actually be able to label God as one of those things because he has the entire view and he has the intention to work things out for your good. The funny thing though about intentions is the best intentions really don't get us anywhere unless the other person perceives the thing that we intended as exactly how we intended it. But God doesn't really have intentions. There is just God's way and then there's the other way and God's way always wins. So when God says he works things together for our good, it's not that he tried and then failed to work things out for our good as though our his intentions failed. It's that he tried and things in fact worked out for their good. That's part of the hope that we have as Christians versus people who aren't saved is we know that our God doesn't mess up. Whereas people who are operating from a place of intention will mess up and will fail. So that's why I wanted to list as best I could these potential causes for suffering is just really to appease the person who's wondering and looking for a reason for their pain, but also wanted to put the perspective on it that your suffering is not a mistake as hard as that is to hear. Because I know some people's suffering is just so deep and so painful, but your suffering is not a mistake and it will work out for your good. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29 11, it's like everybody's favorite life verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That's not just a guess. That's not just an intention. His plans will come to pass. And so that's where I kind of want to leave off today is with this thought about why would God actually allow suffering in our lives? Is it to hurt us? Is it because he's cruel? Is it because he thinks it's funny? No, it's to prosper us, to grow us, to discipline us, and to move us into a position of being more like his son so that we're prepared for heaven so that we can reflect Christ in everything that we do to a lost and dying world. So I actually like the idea of ending on this more positive note, because next week we're going to do something a little more uplifting on the topic of suffering. And we're going to get into things like the comfort that is given to us by God, and even some promises that await those of us who suffer. Now, if you've been with this podcast for any length of time, you know that I've been ending with this verse from Numbers, and I just want to keep bringing this out to you because I really am hoping that when you're listening to this, that it starts to stick with you and it becomes kind of a scripture memorization verse. It's such a good one to take with you when you are suffering and going through something really difficult. And it's also something so beautiful to share with other people when you hear of them suffering. I hope you'll hide these words in your heart as you go through whatever God has called you to go through in this current season or any future seasons. So here it is. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face upon you and give you peace. Isn't that such a beautiful verse? I just love it. 
Okay, as I get ready to close today, I just want to remind you that I have a website that you can visit if you'd like to to find transcripts of this podcast. It is www.unscriptedfaithpod.wixsite.com. And I also have a Facebook page that I've kind of been keeping a secret because I've just been hesitant to do any kind of promotion because I just wanted to see what God would do with this podcast, this whole thing of me stepping out in faith to see if this really was what he wanted me to do. But if you're interested in finding the Facebook page, you can just go to the magnifying glass at the top of the page and type in the unscripted faith podcast. And you'll see the thumbnail image here that is on the RSS feed and other sites that I am listed on for podcasting. And it'll be the same one on Facebook. That's all I got for you. I just want to extend my sincere appreciation for listening to this podcast. I hope that it's blessing you. I hope that you're getting something from it. If you have questions about this or another podcast or topics that you'd eventually like me to cover or even prayer requests, go ahead and send me an email at unscriptedfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, God bless you all.